0: Thank you very much, Karen, for ministering in music. When we come together, we do influence others by how we respond, how we talk. I was handed a poem this morning. I'm going to read it. Jane Killian is the author. And she indicated that someone shared something. I don't know if it was last Sunday, but one Sunday. And it got her mind churning. A glimpse of the artist. As I look at nature, I can clearly see a glimpse of the artist who created you and me from the glorious sunrise to the sunset glow. My heart cries out. He's there, I know, when I look at the moon and the stars above. I marvel at the depth of his endless love in the colors of the rainbow and warm summer air. I see his hands at work everywhere. Oh, what beauty around me does unfold as he paints the mountains in green, red, and gold. Yes, when I view nature, I can clearly see a glimpse of the artist who created you and me. And again, Jane handed that to me this morning. I thought I would share that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for creation, all that you have. Show and through your creation, we thank you also for the life, giving us your word. So we interact with some of Ephesians this morning. We want to be doers and not hearers only of your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's an older lady who grew up in an unstable home. During her teenage years, she would have cared for family members. She didn't have a lot of social life. She was often rejected, has had years of a tough marriage, serve over her children, get into major problems in life. It's been one financial difficulty after another her entire life. Probably one of the most godly women that I know. How did that happen? We've been discussing worldviews. Naturalism, which basically says there is no creator, you no know, everything is in the here and now. Transcendentalism, which is the Eastern worldviews, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. Islam, which ties in with a very well-known religion that we hear quite often in the news. And then we were also talking about Christianity. And we asked some questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? How did the world get here? Last week, we asked the question, what do the worldviews say about the body of Christ? And We know in relation to the body of Christ's naturalism, there is no body of Christ they recognize community and they may organize around a cause or an interest but there is no body of christ transcendentalism again there is no body of christ they may organize around causes and interests transcendentalism there's no body of christ they may follow teacher or uh, yeah they may follow some teachers but again no body of christ islam there's no body of christ they may have groups, they may go to mosques. Christianity stands in distinction to having the body of Christ, a oneness which is through the gospel of Christ. It's a supernatural community. And we may not, as a body of Christ, always display that real well, but it doesn't change that Christianity stands in distinction to naturalism, to transcendentalism, to Islam. So this morning, we want to look at the body of Christ a little more. You might say, why? Because the wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities through the body of Christ. Also, our relationships as believers are the evidence that we are in Christ. And that's very, very important to God. So in the book of Ephesians, we have what we might call God's plan for the church. And we find in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, he talks about saints and saints being in Christ, having redemption, forgiveness, along with other items. But that seems to be so far beyond us that in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul prays for believers that they might know Christ, they might grasp what it means to walk in Christ. In chapter 2, 1 through 10, he talks about the gospel of Christ. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about the sinfulness of the Ephesians along with us today. He talks about the fact in verses 4 through 9 that we were made alive in Christ, and then in verse 10 that we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The implication of the gospel is unity. The Jew, the Gentile becoming one in Christ. The intention in the body of Christ is found in chapter 3, 1 through 13, that the wisdom of God would be made known. We'll discuss that more later. And in light of the wisdom of God being made known through a Jew and a Gentile, a rich and a poor, a socially outgoing person and a withdrawn person, he prays then in verses 14 through 21 that they might be strengthened to grasp this gospel that brings people together, to grasp that type of love. And then in chapters 4 through 6. Living out that wisdom of God. Last week we looked at verses 11 through 22. We found that in Christ there's a breadth of unity. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit. There's a depth also. Consequently, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. We're not having two people that are tolerating one another, but they're being brought together in unity. They're fellow citizens' household. They're heirs together in chapter 3. They're members together in chapter 3. They're sharers together. So, what do we have? A supernatural depth and breadth of community to make the glory of an invisible God visible. You have a black, a white, and a Latino. Care deeply for one another because they're in Christ. You have a tech-savvy person and a non-tech-savvy person. In Christ, they care for each other. You have a 90-year-old and a 15-year-old. Care for one another because they're brought together in Christ. The commonality being Christ. There's a closeness that is thicker than blood. That's why Jesus talked about the fact that when they chose to follow him, it may require denying family and so on. It's a community that is supernatural, and it works, even though there are struggles. Let's read together chapter 3, 1 through 13 of Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, For what reason, in light of the fact that the Jew and the Gentile are one in Christ, God lives by his spirit, it's becoming a dwelling. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, You will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that the gospel, the Gentiles, this mystery is that the through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for past ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. which are your glory. Now, Paul talks about a mystery in this passage, a mystery, obviously, something that is hidden. But he talks about it being revealed. What was hidden? What administration was Paul given so that he could reveal something? As you read in the flow of the passage, it has to do with the gospel in verse six, it says, This mystery, mystery requires an unveiling and uncovering. This mystery that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ. You go back in the old testament. You had Jew, you had Gentile, they hated one another. To a large extent, the Jews receive the promises of God, the blessing of God. Christ comes along, and what happens? The Gentiles become heirs together, members together, <laughs> shares together in the promise. And Paul says, I'm a servant of that gospel. In the Old Testament, the Jews thought Jews, Jews, Jews. At, in the early church, the 12 were still thinking the gospel was for the Jews. And Paul came along and says, No, the gospel is for the Gentiles also. And Peter received a vision the gospel is for the Gentiles, and he went and he talked to Cornelius. That's the mystery that has been revealed. And it's through this mystery that has been revealed, God's intent, as found in verse 10, that through the church, the wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities. What is the wisdom of God? The Jew, the Gentile, becoming one in Christ. So this unity spoken of in chapter 2, 11 through 22 is so supernatural that it becomes a testimony to the spirit world. To angels, to demons, to Satan. So the body of Christ with Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, and so on, one in Christ is a testimony to those that cannot experience salvation. The wisdom of God, which is Christ, the gospel of Christ, makes known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's the purpose of God. A Jew, a Gentile becoming one, worshiping together, caring for one another, not existing together but caring deeply for one another. It's like taking a Democrat on the far left, when we say far left, and a Republican on the far right, and they care deeply for one another. It's like taking a socially high and mighty person and one who is from the dredges of society, and they care for one another because of commonality in Christ. It's like taking the physical, strapping young man who exercises and goes to the weight room, and the one who is in a wheelchair that can't get around, and they care deeply for one another because of the commonality in Jesus Christ. It's taking the one who has been in all kinds of legal troubles and come to faith in Christ, and the one who has basically lived a perfect life, as far as can be legally, and they come together in Christ and they care deeply for one another. That becomes a testimony, makes known to the spirit world, the rules and authorities, the wisdom of God. Taking the technological buff, and the one who still uses the rotary phone. And brings them together. Commonality in Christ. Can you begin to understand God's desire for the church? We think a program, a ministry, an outreach. God thinks members of God's household. A temple, a dwelling in which he lives. We think age groups, social groups, sports groups, political Parties, God thinks, heirs together, members together, shares together in Christ. We think, make unity. God thinks, I've already made it through the cross, which brings everyone in the the same plane, repentance and faith. We think, reach people with sports, reach people with music, reach the poor with food, reach the tech wizard, With high tech in a church, God thinks reconcile people to one another and Himself through the cross of Christ. How can this wisdom be understood in a reality where we struggle with brokenness, defensiveness, selfishness? We tend to withdraw. To reach young believers, we think of their interest in how to appeal to them. God thinks his wisdom made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, through his household, through his temple, and his dwelling. We think programs, God thinks relationships. To keep young adults, we think methods and groups, but God thinks unity, oneness, in relationships. Resolve relational struggles, we tend to walk away and start something new. But God thinks humility in maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Paul recognizes that we struggle with this unity that is in Christ. We don't have to try to establish it. It's already present in Christ. But we struggle with that. We have differences of personalities. We struggle with race. We struggle with a high-tech people and a low-tech people. We struggle with socially. Some of us are very outgoing and some of us are very withdrawn. Paul recognized we struggle with that. So what does he do in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3? He prays. For this reason, because the Unity in the body of Christ becomes a testimony to the spirit world. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you be rooted and established in love How can the body of Christ make known the wisdom of God to the spirit world? We struggle with that. So Paul prays. He says, I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And how does he pray? I pray that out of his glorious riches, out of God's Glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. We're dealing with the supernatural. We need strengthening to grasp this unity and what that looks like in daily living, which is described in chapters 4 through 6. So he says, I'm praying that you will be strengthened. How? Through his spirit. In chapter 1, we find... In verses 13 and 14, the Spirit is the one who has sealed us. In chapter 2 and verse 18, it is through the Spirit that we have access to the same Father. In chapter 2 and verse 22, it's through the Spirit that we become a dwelling of God's. We're dealing with something supernatural here. Spirit doing a work. His prayer is that you might be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being. He doesn't say a change in outward circumstances, but strengthened in your inner being for what purpose? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, 22 and 23, he becomes head of the church. In chapter 2, 19 through 22, Christ is the cornerstone. In chapter 3 and 10 and 11, he's the wisdom of God. Paul's prayer is that we might be strengthened in our inner person for what purpose? That Christ may dwell in our hearts. He goes on and he says, I pray that you're being rooted and established in love. You know, basically you may know the greatness of God's love. Might experience it in life. You ever get hurt? Someone hurt you, not physically, but in some other way. And you think, I'm supposed to forgive that person. And you battle with that for hours and maybe days and even weeks. Paul's prayer would be that you experience God's love so that you can forgive. Do you ever blow it? With your family, and you said some words that you wish you would not have said, and you dwell on that, I think, boy, I was a real bummer, I was a real jerk. Paul's prayer is that you might grasp God's love and experience it in the context of putting yourself down. Do you ever go to work with a critical attitude or go into a classroom with a critical spirit? No, I don't like this teacher. Boy, this boss rots. And you battle with that. and You think, you know, I'm supposed to work with joy, as Alan prayed earlier. Experiencing God's love is to say, I will shift my attitude. That's Paul's prayer. I want you to experience, I want you to grasp God's love in day-by-day living. A love as described in this passage, in parallel passages, that is complete. It's unconditional. You can't increase it, and you can't decrease it. Let's turn the temperature up a little outside today. We can't turn God's love up. You can't turn it down. It's complete. It's stable. There's total acceptance. Who do you know that knows all about you and still loves you unconditionally? Most of us are not willing to reveal some things about ourselves or how we think and what we are like because we fear rejection. Paul's prayer is that we will grasp this love God knows us totally, completely. But yet he loves us. It's total acceptance at a price because Christ paid the penalty. It's a love that motivates. filled to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Tonight we'll look at a passage in the Gospels that ties in with love that motivates. But in chapter 5 and verse 1 of Ephesians, Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul prays. God, may they grasp your love because they need that if they're going to relate to the unity that is in Christ and they're going to live out what is mentioned in chapters 4 through 6. Love grows as we accept the depth of our sinfulness. The longer I walk with God, the more I realize the depth of my sin. Ephesians 2, Paul describes as You're dead in transgressions and sins. But then you're made alive in Christ. You've been raised together with Christ. That's love. And that love motivates. Peter is the one who said, Lord, I will never deny you. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. And Peter said, never. And we know that Peter denied knowing Christ three times. And Christ looked at him when the third time came around. But yet Peter's the one who preached on the day of Pentecost. Peter's the one who said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Christ. Crucify me upside down. What happened between the three denials and the day of Pentecost? Peter experienced the love of Christ. Because Jesus came, and he said in John Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. And Jesus said a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus said a second time, feed my sheep. And a third time, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah, you know I do, and feed my sheep. As you look at the flow of John's gospel, Jesus is affirming to Peter, I love you. Paul's prayer is that we might grasp this love so that we might be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. A practical illustration. Ann and I have been married 44 years now. Yeah, 44. The other day we went out for Valentine's Day, even though Valentine's Day is today, and we were talking some and I said, while we're eating, honey, i got some questions for you. And we discussed our relationship. As we shared and interacted, we concluded that we love each other in a much different way now than we did in the first years of our marriage. And part of what had happened in our relationship We both are coming to grasp God's love for us. It's unconditional. So I can extend that to Ruth Ann. She can say, Dan, you're a real jerk. I can say, okay, honey, I'm a real jerk. Can you tell me why? And I can still love her. Or I may say something about her. Not that we do that all the time. But she knows me more and more, and I know her more and more. As we grow in love. That influences our relationship. And that's Paul's prayer. Love motivates. One of the greatest ways for children to grow up to love and to serve God is for them to know that they're loved. Period, by their parents. Because that love motivates. It moves us to greater and greater Christlikeness. By the way, 10 years ago, Rachel was born at this time, right? JT dared me to say that in my sermon, so since I'm still here, it's her 10th birthday. But Paul continues in the passage. And what does he mention at the end? That there would be a power at work in us beyond what we can ask or comprehend. So that there would be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. We by nature do not grasp God's power and how that looks in day by day living. He says there's a power at work in you that is beyond what you can ask or comprehend. Lord, I certainly can't love this person Who has no technical ability. And I'm real tech savvy. And the Lord says I know you can't. That's why there's a power at work in you beyond what you can ask or imagine. Lord you don't know how this person hurt me. Yes I do. And I know you can't respond to them and forgive them. But there's a power at work in you beyond what you can ask or comprehend. You can respond. Lord, here I am. I'm an 18 year old. I'm a strapping young man. And I could just do most everyone in. You expect me to spend time with that widow in a wheelchair that has no concept of what life is about in the strong lane? I can't. I know you can't. But there's a power at work in you beyond what you can ask or comprehend. You're a unit. In Christ. And that's Paul's prayer. That believers would be enabled. They would grasp. This power. At work. In them. Oh we struggle. That will come out. In chapter 4. Because he says be humble. Gentle patient bear with one another. But in the midst of that struggle, he says, remember, you're a unit. I prayed that you might grasp God's love. You might experience the fullness of God. You might grasp the power that is at work in you beyond what you can ask or comprehend. What is the result? Ephesians 4 through 6, lived out, displaying the wisdom of God by saints who still struggle with sin. The lady I described earlier, the beginning of my sermon, how could she be who she was? How did she develop from where she was to being a godly woman? Commonality in Christ and people ministering to her day or week or month in and out over years. There's an older gentleman who stands in distinction to the woman that I described earlier, who grew up in what we would call a good background, a good, loving home. He would have went to church, but yet developed a great deal of pride and selfishness and self-sufficiency, even though he appeared very good on the outside. He was very capable, but he was going to make it through life. If you were to meet him today, you will find a man that has the... Pride knocked out of him pretty well. Who is very God-sufficient. Who has developed a great deal of gentleness. A degree of humility. A willingness to sit down with someone, and have them tell them, this is how you blew it, and thank them for telling that and saying, can you have any suggestions? Will you pray for me as I seek to make a change in my life? How did that man move from a proud, arrogant, self-sufficient young man to an older man? That is much different. Ephesians 2, commonality in Christ. Ephesians 3, people praying for him. And then being willing to live out Ephesians 4 through 6. The one another's. as we think about what we have been discussing this morning and last week, I would encourage you to consider attending Sunday school as we address the one another's in weeks to come, as we seek to live out as a body this commonality that we have in Christ, ultimately for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, your word makes it very clear that in Christ, we're a building, we're a temple. We don't have to establish that that's been done through Christ. We know that your purpose is that we might make known your wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. It's hard for us to grasp all of that. And as Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus, I pray for our body of believers here at Roaring Brook. That out of your glorious riches, Father, you might strengthen us with power through your spirit in our our inner being. So that Christ might dwell in us, Father, as a body of believers. Dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray too, Father, that or having been rooted and established in love, we may have power together with other saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love. And to know that love, to experience that love, so that we may experience the fullness of Christ. We pray too, Father, that we might grasp The power that is at work in us beyond what we can ask or comprehend. And how that looks in our day-by-day living. We confess, we struggle, we haven't arrived. But grateful that in Christ you continue to work in us. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.